Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Woodland, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Professor Mark Lipsitch is a world-famous expert on emerging contagious diseases, including COVID-19, uh, and he's among the most read epidemiologists on Twitter. He's getting a ton of media requests every day, so I felt both really lucky and a little bit surprised that he was willing to set aside a full two hours just to talk to me. If, like me, you've tuned out of COVID-19 news, basically, and want a quick way to get back up to date, uh, this episode will do that for you. Uh, and if you've somehow been keeping up with the latest developments, uh, Mark has plenty of new views to share as well. Just one notice before that, uh, the Effective Altruism Global Conference in San Francisco had to be cancelled in March for obvious reasons, and I guess we can't yet know whether the London event in October is going to be able to go ahead. But to fill that gap, there's a new online conference uh, that you can join next month between June 12th and 14th uh, called EAGX Virtual. Uh, the main focus is going to be one-on-one -on -one meetings between attendees, but there'll also be a bunch of live and pre-recorded content, including the usual talks, Q&As, uh, speed meetings, and uh, group discussions. Presumably, this won't be quite as good as an in-person conference, but it will cost a hell of a lot less of your time and money. It's actually being run on a pay-as-you-want system with a suggested price of $40, uh, which would allow the organizers to cover their costs. And to go, you won't have to catch a bus, uh, much less a plane. Uh, so it could still be good value if you're looking to make connections or find a way to have more impact with your career or with your life in general. It's aimed at people who already have some familiarity with ideas related to effective altruism, which probably includes you if you regularly listen to this show. You can apply to go at eaglobal.org. All right, without further ado, here's Professor Mark Lipsitch. Today, I'm speaking with Mark Lipsitch. Mark is a professor of epidemiology at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. He did his PhD at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar studying zoology, finishing in 1995, and later worked at the US Centers for Disease Control before joining the faculty at Harvard. He's an author of more than 200 peer-reviewed publications on antimicrobial resistance, mathematical modeling of infectious disease transmission, and development of immunity. His group produced one of the earliest estimates of the transmissibility of the original SARS virus in 2003, and has worked to estimate the transmissibility of the 1918 Spanish flu as well. He served on the President's Council of Advisors Working Group on the H1N1 Influenza back in 2009, and has provided advice on antimicrobial resistance, SARS, and preparing for flu pandemics to governments around the world. The last few months, he's been working to offer the best possible recommendations about the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Mark. Thank you for having me. You've been uh, one of a handful of people uh, that me and many others have been turning to to understand what is going on with the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic uh, via your Twitter presence, uh, which has been a welcome source of sanity and a large amount of technical expertise. Uh, so it's a real privilege to get to, to the chance to speak uh, with you in person. Uh, I hope we'll get to talk about the latest COVID science and how we should be responding to the pandemic. Uh, but first, uh, how are you trying to help out with the anti-COVID effort at the moment? Along a few different fronts. And I mean, my primary occupation is I'm a scientist, I'm an epidemiologist. I see that as a, a broad set of responsibilities and, and areas to work in. And so when we first saw in late January, early February, as a group that this was starting to spread, we decided, I mean, I sort of urged our center to begin mobilizing and more so as the threat grew more obvious to do things that would be useful and that would be not necessarily the same things others were doing. One difference between now and the original SARS is there are dozens of really first-rate groups around the world that are doing good mathematical modeling. And so we tried to figure out what are the pieces that we could do that were more tied to work we were already doing or work that was slightly off the beaten path. So we began with things like seasonality and 
trying to understand travelers and their impact. And we've, as a group, begun from our center working a lot on studying mobility and that as a proxy for social distancing. And that's mostly work that I'm not directly involved in, but that our center has has done under the leadership of Caroline Bucky, a colleague of mine. And my interests are very heavily with immunity and vaccines. And so trying to set up studies that will help us to understand how immunity works better, so-called seroprotection studies, serologic studies to to understand how how the immunity is distributed in the population and how good it is, and then studies that could lead to a vaccine. And, and my work on advocating for human challenge trials of vaccines has been one aspect of that. And so that's the sort of academic work. And then partly as a result of the peculiar situation in the U.S. where the federal government is not taking on its traditional role as supplier of good information that everybody can rely on because of political considerations. I and a lot of my colleagues have felt that one of our major roles can be to provide unbiased information about what we think is the best science. And so I've been doing that a lot through talking with journalists and through writing in the popular press. Okay, great. We'll return to some of those issues over over the next couple of hours. But first up, I've somewhat given up staying abreast on the latest developments in the pandemic as it felt like it was kind of a full-time job that I gave up on, I guess, a month or two ago. And I I think even if I tried, I would be getting so much wrong because I I lack a lot of relevant training. So here for for maybe the first half an hour or hour, I just wanted to kind of throw a bunch of somewhat technical questions at you, things that I kind of wish I'd had the time to to look into and get get your take on where the evidence stands today. But I've got a lot of these, so uh, feel free to pass if you don't have much to add on any one of them. Sound okay? Sounds good. All right. First up, yeah, what fraction of the U.S. population has been infected with the virus so far? Well, I think it's really hard to say because in most places we don't have measurements. And what has become clear from the measurements we have is that it's extremely variable by location. So Chelsea, Massachusetts is probably the highest seroprevalence or record of infection that's been measured that I'm aware of. And that's around 30% of the population studied. Other places are in the low single digits of percents where it's been looked at. And and even within New York City, when people have looked at prevalence of current infection, it's quite variable by neighborhood. So it's clear that to get a representative sample, we really are going to need to know a lot more. Having said that, I think it's probably in the low tens of percents in the most in certain dense urban areas often in the low single digits or mid single digits in many other areas. And so I think overall, it's probably in the high single digits of percents in the United States, but that could be wrong. Okay. I guess, yeah, given that research that we've now started doing these seroprevalence surveys to try to figure out how many people have been infected, what do we now know about the true infection fatality rate in the, in the US? Can we kind of put tighter bounds on it than we were able to a month or two ago? I think we can. I think it's clearly under, say, one and a half percent, and it's very likely under one percent. It's clearly above 0.2 percent and probably above 0.4 percent. So I think, you know, if I really had to cover all my bases, I would say between 0.2 and 1.5, but I would put most of my money in that intermediate range. I think one of the the challenges is that it's so variable by your risk factors that a little bit of unrepresentativeness in the sampling of, of cases can translate into a, a really wrong inference about the, the death rate. 
Yeah, last day I read an op-ed you wrote, uh, you think that most people are probably going to have decent immunity against being reinfected by the same virus for at least, say, a year or two. Do you still think that's the case based on research since then? Yeah, I think there's some slightly encouraging news that was published, I think, just yesterday in Cell by a large group of people of, I think, mostly American researchers. I didn't look at the whole author list, or I don't know all the people, but, and that seems to show that the large majority of people create all three types of immunities, two types of T cells and and antibodies, and that essentially everybody that they studied creates an antibody response if you wait long enough. So that's that's a good sign. And of course, what we don't know exactly is the degree of protection it offers. But but we don't know that for any new virus. And we assume in most cases that there's pretty good immunity. The only reason everyone's hesitant with this one is that it's a coronavirus. And a lot of coronaviruses have sort of weak immunity. But I think all indications are that there will be some level of immunity in virtually everyone. That's reassuring. Do you think the fatality rate and just general health damage that COVID does might be low enough that we should consider just letting most people gradually get the disease rather than doing you know, what we're doing now to try to prevent it from spreading? Well, I think what we're doing now to try to prevent it from spreading is letting people get it gradually, honestly, <laughs> um, at least in the United States. I think it's very different in other parts of the world, both in both directions. But at the moment, we don't have a way to really keep it under control in the United States and I think it remains to be seen whether whether we can do better than control it more than just letting everybody get it gradually. I think probably the only places that can do better than that are islands. But I mean, it clearly is mild in most people. As far as we know, we don't know what the long term effects are. And that's a that's an asterisk to anything we say about mildness. But I, I think we're going to get to a point where we're letting it spread slowly and we should try to make it spread as slowly as possible so that we protect more people with a vaccine or a treatment rather than fewer. And so delay is good. But but I just don't actually think it's possible to to just stop it at this point. Yeah. So I guess you think that by the time a vaccine or a more permanent satisfactory solution comes about, it's probable that a large fraction of the US population will have had, had the disease. I don't know about large. I think, you know, if it's about five or 10% now, I can't envision a scenario where we have a vaccine or a really good treatment before it's about twice that. But but I think there's just so much uncertainty in each of the pieces of that timing that it's really hard to be precise. Okay, I will talk more about that. that that's really interesting. We'll come back to that in some later questions. Do you think we can learn much from cross-country comparisons at this point? Or do you think they're more often leading people astray? I think they're very helpful, in fact. I mean, of course, testing whether that's true or not remains to be seen. But but in terms of forming hypotheses about what could be possible or feasible, I think, to me, the experience of South Korea and Singapore in trying to use contact tracing as the major control measure, and in Singapore's case, losing control after a long period of, of seeming to have it under control, and in South Korea's case, getting the case numbers down to a very, very tiny numbers, and then loosening social distancing with contact tracing in place and finding that that wasn't good enough, to me is very informative that we that this virus is just not easy to control by those measures, even in places that are perhaps two of the best suited countries in the world to to make it work if it's doable. And Prime Minister of Singapore went on Facebook 
very, very early on, I think in January or certainly early February, saying we are likely to lose control of this. And I think it was that level of realism that probably allowed them to keep control as long as they did. And so I think I think those are informative. I think also that cross-country comparisons are informative for showing us what other Western democracies can accomplish with social distancing and for encouraging us to try to do better. And I think also that international comparisons highlight a lot of what we don't know, which is, or highlight that there are aspects of this that we just don't understand. So we don't know why India and Vietnam and Thailand and parts of Africa are suffering less from this than everyone expected. And we have some hypotheses and it's been written about and there's lots lots of ideas, but the answer to that is remains really confusing. And I think it points to the fact that we need to understand aspects of immunity and of determinants of transmission by weather, by urban density and other factors. So it helps to point out some of the things we need to study better. Yeah. I think a style of analysis that I'm a little bit worried about is where kind of people just pluck out a handful of US states or a handful of countries and then do comparisons of those saying, well, this country did well and it had this policy and this country did badly and had this other policy. And they don't kind of check whether what they're claiming would hold up if they looked across a much wider range of countries and didn't just kind of pluck out a, a random subset of them. Do you also worry about that? Yeah, I worry about it on on at least a, a number of grounds. So the first is what you say that you know, you can find two data points that, that differ in interesting ways and spin a story and that it may not hold up in a larger sample. The second piece is that there is clearly an element of luck here and that that certain cities and countries got hit early. They had a lot of spread before they intervened. And in some cases that was because of poor policy, but in some cases that was because they just didn't know it was there, like Wuhan, for example. And, well, they knew it was there, but they didn't understand the size of the threat. And so places that got big epidemics early before global recognition was widespread had bad luck. And I think that's an important piece of it. And then the last thing is there are a lot of people with a lot of agendas who are doing these comparisons, knowing the answer before they look at the data. And I think that adds another layer of of problems. But I mean, we have to use data that we don't have anything else to do, but trying to take a scientific approach of seeing the signal and then being the one to point out all the aspects that might not be consistent with with your theory before someone else does. I wish there was more of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a case where there's so much unexplained variance that it's unusually easy to spin narratives <laughs> based on kind of to prove whatever you want to prove. Yeah, I looked at the figures yesterday and of the large countries, it seemed like the UK had the had the fourth highest per capita COVID death rate and the US actually was, was the eighth highest, which pro- probably overstates things because maybe there's some other countries where the death rate is higher than it looks because they're not measuring it very well. But it does seem like both both countries have fared pretty poorly compared to like overseas benchmarks. How would you How would you explain that? Is it, is it possible to do it at this point? Yeah, I think in the case of the UK, I'm... I'm just less familiar with how it's played out, although I some sort of understand the broad strokes. I mean, in the United States, the total lack of a national strategy has has cost lives, and there's just no other way to say it. I think we have extraordinarily good people working in the top and middle and throughout the public health agencies, and their views have been sidelined largely in favor of 
of a agenda to first pretend there was nothing going on and then to minimize it and to do all sorts of things that are really hard to imagine without being inside the president's head. But you just you can't deal with a problem like this piecemeal and without a strategy. Hmm. What's the biggest policy mistake that you've observed, I guess, other than that one? <laughs> well, I think, and again, you know, I in general am interested in everything that's happening in the world, but I've been focused more on the U.S. than I might have expected during a pandemic just because we have so many issues here and and the need to make to try to contribute to public understanding here is is greater than anticipated so i'm focusing on the us for a minute i think sort of every piece of it follows from that overall lack of a strategy starting with the with the failure to get testing up and running and the failure to sort of get everything up and running i was one of the i was really the only person i knew who thought that President Trump's decision to limit travel from China was a good idea. Everybody else said it's not going to work and it's just going to delay things a little bit at best. And I agreed with them on that, but I thought a little delay could gain us a lot if we use the time. And I hadn't quite processed, uh, as perhaps (laughs) they had, that this was not the first piece of the policy. This was the policy. This was our approach to dealing with the problem. So had we built up capacity for personal protective equipment and ventilators and hospital capacity and all that stuff in that extra time, it would have saved lives. But instead, we just closed the borders, proclaimed victory and said it would all be gone again. And so to me, that it is sort of all of a piece, but, but it's not understanding that buying time is a valuable commodity and you've paid a, a big price for it. So you better, better use it well. Yeah, weird thing I heard is that the US was just allowing American nationals to come back from China just straight through without going into any quarantine or any testing. It was only Chinese nationals, I think, who were getting blocked from coming back, which I mean, obviously, it doesn't have a lot of the the virus does not choose who to infect based on their nationality. Well, I think that's because it was a tactic, not a strategy. It was a it was a we're doing it was an attempt to show we're doing something rather than a piece of a strategy to make us safe from this virus. Yeah. The uh, IHME modeling has come in for quite a lot of criticism. Is there any interesting bad modeling that you've seen over, over the last few months that, that went wrong in, a, in an informative way? Yes, there has been some. I, I do have another example. So the, the, the issue with the IHME model is that it's not an infectious disease model. It's a curve-fitting model that doesn't take into account infectious disease dynamics. And so I just think of that as sort of in its category by itself of not very helpful although extremely well-publicized. But the interesting modeling that I think has gone wrong went wrong for a very technical reason that we've been actually trying to understand better. And that was a paper by Pan and colleagues published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which concluded that the data from Wuhan that they were analyzing showed that the lockdown that happened on January 23rd was not enough by itself to reduce transmission to a point where cases began to fall instead of increase. And so we've dug into the methods that they used, and it turns out that they used a method for estimating the reproduction number, the, the number of secondary cases each case generates on a given day. That was That's a perfectly good method, and in some ways the best of the methods, but has to be it has to be timed in a certain way. You have to anchor the the number that you're estimating for each day very carefully. And they did it 
in a way that was more naive because at least some of the leaders of that project were not infectious disease modelers. And the conclusion was that only once they instituted involuntary out-of-home quarantine and isolation was the epidemic brought under control. That then has been promoted by some of the authors as meaning that the that such a policy should be repeated everywhere and that and most famously in an article in the New York Times by Jim Kim and Harvey Feinberg and one other collaborator, it said, based on this Wuhan analysis in part that's faulty, it said Americans are going to need to get used to involuntary family separation. And that struck me as, you know, sort of piling bad civic policy on top of of bad science to get really bad outcomes. So to me, that's the that's the worst example yeah, it was a, interesting, that recommendation, because it seemed to kind of miss that, well, at least before, before you were doing forcible quarantine, forcible separation, why not at least start by trying to encourage people to engage in voluntary separation and like provide free accommodation for people who wanted to isolate themselves from their families to avoid infecting their, their loved ones? You weren't even at that point. <laughs> so it seems like at least you'd want to uh, do that, like pay, maybe pay people to do it before you started forcibly taking them out like they were doing in China. Right. I mean, I think there are so many... That, that article also misinterpreted what had happened in Korea and Singapore. I mean, it was it was people that I very much respect making arguments that I thought were indefensible. Yeah. So people are kind of always suggesting more things that we could do about COVID, but it's less often suggest things that we should stop doing so we can kind of free up resources to actually be able to do those other things that would be more useful. Are there any kind of government activities that you think we should stop in order to free up you know, attention for, for other things? Yeah, I think I think we're going to begin to learn more about that as different places open up in different ways. At the near the beginning of the of the intense period in the United States, New York City was working very very hard to do contact tracing at a time when they knew that they had lots and lots of cases and didn't know about most of them. And that's exactly the setting where contact tracing can't work because no matter how hard you fight the five or 10% that you know about, you're not doing anything about the rest. And that was in real time diverting the health department from doing all the things that people in the health department wanted to do. And finally, the mayor of New York was convinced to stop insisting on this. And that was very much what people in the health department wanted to do was to get on to, to other activities. So I think, I think in general, I'm a bit pessimistic about contact tracing as a mainstay of the policy. I think it's an important thing to to have in place and to try to use. But I don't, again, I, I think we have to throw many different approaches at this and, and the approaches that only contact, only target certain individuals are by definition very limited, especially in low information settings. On a more sort of granular level, there's been a lot of, especially in Europe, there's been a lot of closing of outdoor public spaces. And I've written an op-ed and said a few times that outdoor transmission is just a lot less likely. It's not that it's not possible. It's not that we shouldn't social distance, but but putting some resources, especially with so many people out of work, putting some resources into trying to keep social distancing happening in parks rather than and in beaches, even rather than closing them off, seems like a, a much better trade off because I think mental health is clearly going to be a big casualty in this response and and being outdoors is really good for for lots of things 
Yeah, closing outdoor spaces seems super misguided to me. It also means that you'll lose public support for the stay-at-home message sooner because people just find it intolerable if they can't at least go outside to a park sometimes. Yeah, but I think a lot of countries have done that. Yeah. What do you think of Sweden's more laissez-faire approach? I think it's clearly killing more people than, than the neighbors. Having said that, I think that we're all almost all moving in that direction and that hopefully we can learn something from Sweden about what doesn't work. But I think everybody is getting tired of being under restrictive policies. And I mean, Massachusetts so far has not reopened, but but most states in the United States have begun to reopen and I think are heading in that direction. And I think Sweden has, at great cost to themselves, demonstrated to the world that that's costly. Yeah, it's interesting. I've seen some, well, it seems like Swedes, despite the lack of government instructions, are self-isolating a fair bit just on off, off, off their own bat and traveling a whole lot less. And at the same time, their economy, so, so their economy has contracted maybe more than you would expect, given that the government hasn't really ordered, ordered people to do that much. And at the same time, their health results are worse, but not like way worse. And I think it's just maybe because, in fact, what they're doing in reality is not that different than what their neighbors are doing. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And and I also wonder, I mean, a friend, we were having a discussion among our group by Zoom about Sweden. And somebody said, well, my friend in Sweden is social distancing. And this next person said, well, my friend is. And I said, well, yeah, of course, all of our friends are social distancing because we're, we're their students. And, <laughs> and well, yeah, so maybe maybe they're more aware, but also people who are people who can do that because they're students or office workers or whatever can do that. But, but I mean, another factor about Sweden is that although it's changing, I guess, recently, they do not have the levels of inequality that some other places have like the United States and in places with concentrated wealth inequality, there's also concentrated health inequality of all the kinds of conditions that predispose people to bad outcomes with COVID. So I don't know how to quantify that, but, but it, it must be, it must be a part of the story as well. Yeah. Do you have a view on making and wearing homemade masks? My daughter's made dozens of them and we wear them. I mean, I think the the limited data suggests that they are protective for other people, not perfectly protective, but, and I can't say that I enjoy it. It really is quite unpleasant, but compared to other types of ways of slowing down virus transmission, it's probably one of the more tolerable ones. So I'm, I think it should be compulsory outside. I mean, not outside Sorry. necessarily, but <laughs> indoors in, in public, public in, indoor areas, right. in public areas and probably some outdoor areas. Yeah. My impression is that public discourse focuses a lot on vaccines, maybe because they're easy to explain and it's really nice if you can get there, but we may not have a vaccine for years, I guess possibly never. So do you think we need to maybe put more attention into drug treatment or perhaps testing, tracing and isolating people? Or maybe finding a way to continue, you know, somewhat normal life without allowing that much transmission, kind of as alternative exit strategies to the to the stay-at-home orders. Yeah, I think I mean enough is at stake here that we should be trying everything we can on all of these fronts. I mean, a quarter of the economy is a lot is a lot of the economy, and it's and we're not done yet. So I think I think it's clear that we need to push on all these fronts because even if we do get a vaccine, it will take a while to scale it up. And it will take, and there will be some hiccups along the way. So uh, clearly, we need a lot of creative thinking about alternative ways to to make life go on. And you know, I think 
I haven't seen any really brilliant ideas that seem doable yet, but I think there are a number of ideas that may have aspects that work. And one of one that I kind of like, although it's it's got plenty of issues also is is the sort of four days on, ten days off working approach to try to essentially get it out of sync with the virus transmission. This is a group of Israeli investigators who have proposed that. And to me, the one hole in that is that the 10 days off would be then transmitting to your people yeah. at home. Seems like a big weakness. So, <laughs> yeah, but but that kind of thinking is is very much to be encouraged. On the drug front, I've been advocating along with several colleagues, and there's now a nonprofit that's that's funding this, a real need for drugs that are that are effective against early infection and mild infection to prevent it from getting severe rather than only looking for drugs that can save severely ill people from from death or or intensive care. There's a good rationale that most antiviral drugs work better in the early phases of infection, as we've seen from many other treatments. And you could you could help a lot more people and reduce the burden on hospitals. So I think that's that's a pretty straightforward modification to how we study things that would be very valuable. And there's a, a group called treatearly.org that's raised money to, to try to fund such trials. Hmm. Yeah, you said, you said you're in favor of creative thinking here. So I guess, should we consider variolating people with tiny doses of the virus, which is kind of a strategy that historically, or there's some evidence that it produces a much more mild illness, so you could potentially get immunity without that many people dying? I think it's worth considering. As you know, I put a lot of effort into a different controversial idea and I think I might stop with one as being <laughs> as being the as being a primary advocate. But I think this is a serious possibility, and I've heard it proposed by very thoughtful and knowledgeable people. And I think it's worth considering. Okay, yeah, we'll uh, return to the to the other controversial idea uh, later on. There's a bunch of reports out there which all feature um, a big scale up in testing, including um, Roadmap to Pandemic Resilience, uh, which had 21 authors. Uh, Scott Gottlieb wrote um, National Coronavirus Response, a Roadmap to Reopening with a few other authors. Uh, and, and Nobel Prize winner Paul Romer has been out there promoting a plan to test uh, everyone in the US on a periodic cycle of a, of a week or two, I don't remember exactly. Um, we'll put up a link to, to all of uh, those uh, policy platforms or those, uh, those suggested strategies. Do you have thoughts on any of those proposals? What I can say about all of these testing-based plans is we need to scale up testing for every possible way forward. There's no, there's no approach that makes sense that doesn't involve considerably more testing. How we deploy that testing, I think there are a lot of ideas and a lot of creative ideas. I like the idea of using testing to try to, of using testing rather than long-term quarantine for contacts, which is one of the aspects of the roadmap for pandemic resilience. I think that's a, a good idea, although it would take enormously more amounts of testing if the contact tracing was effective. So I think I think it's good that people are trying to think through all of these things. I think every plan has limitations, and that's not because people aren't doing a good job. It's because this is a problem that doesn't have a perfect solution. Yeah. I noticed that you and some colleagues had made a website, uh, covidpathforward.com, as a way of kind of keeping up with the views that you're forming on policy and behavioral issues here. Is there, is there anything you want to say about that project? Yeah, I think we took a, a broader, but in some sense, less comprehensive view, or in one sense, more comprehensive, but 
where where we thought there were some things that we could agree upon. And there are now 14 points in there, ranging from massive upscale of testing, which I just mentioned, to the latest one is healthier buildings, which the instigator of this website, Joe Allen, is an expert on, to use of masks as a as a prevention measure. I don't think that this amounts to a comprehensive plan, but it, it's the sort of overlap, in my view, of all the sensible things that we're aware of that people have been proposing and that together will make a difference in helping to control this virus. But I think there are still many more things to be worked out. Yeah. Do you worry that suggesting so many things maybe kind of lacks prioritization and could mean that people that people's efforts are a bit too diffuse? Or maybe is it a good idea to just throw everything at, at people and then they can they can pick up the whatever part of the set of suggestions they're, they're capable of implementing? Well, I think a lot of these are relatively minor things. I mean, wearing a mask is unpleasant and I don't like it, but but it's not like a wild change in life. And and testing is not something people need to do. It's something that employers and policymakers need to do. So it's individual, certain kinds of people, but not everybody. I think going back to the idea of having a strategy, a strategy has many tactics. And I think there's no way to fight this virus without doing many, many different things. And so that's why we tried to highlight the ones that are essentially relatively low cost. In fact, most of them scaling up testing is maybe more costly, but, but certainly worth it. But a lot of the alterations to buildings, for example, are, you know, in the sort of few dollar range up to the few hundred dollar range for a small building and and more for another, for a larger building. But, but these are not crazy ideas. These are sort of small improvements that we can make that together will add up to something. Yeah. What would be the wrong lesson to take from COVID in terms of managing future pandemics? It feels a little early to be drawing lessons because uh, <laughs> we don't know how the story ends. But yeah. I mean, I think the right lesson to draw is that early response really, really matters. That is really the strongest correlate that I can see of of who's had worse and better outcomes so far, that that involves getting sometimes overreacting. And so some there will be cases where where you react to something and it doesn't materialize as a big threat. But I think we can see the, the costs of of letting something get out of control. Yeah, speaking of reacting early, is it realistic that if you know China had been like really on the ball and tried to control this thing as soon as they found out about it, maybe in late December, or they had better monitoring so they could find out about kind of a new virus spreading earlier, that we could have prevented it from becoming a pandemic and saved tens of trillions of dollars? I don't think we'll ever know for sure. But I think it's completely clear that small epidemics are easier to control than big ones. That's almost so obvious it's not worth saying. And at some point, this was small. So I think the question is, if it if it had been three people or eight people, and had been and those people had been isolated adequately, then we might have been spared this. But you know, it's it's really hard to say. And I think, I mean, I think probably the best answer to that is Singapore ultimately didn't control it, despite having more advanced warning and smaller numbers of cases early on, and extremely good public health. New Zealand may be the greatest success story. And so maybe if China had replicated New Zealand, but I'm not sure that China could have replicated New Zealand because it's not an island and it's not, it's not, they, it was it's New Year's. populated. Yeah. And there's a lot to be, a lot of things in New Zealand's favor. So I think that's probably the best answer is no, it wouldn't have worked because nobody else was able to control it with more 
with even earlier interventions. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I guess you know often people say, well, the 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 way to stop pandemics in future is to control them at the outset and prevent them from getting out of hand with like a very fast response. But I suppose maybe that works on on diseases that are less contagious than this one. Yeah. And I mean, this is, it's probably on the borderline. So, I mean, it, I guess the wrong lesson to take would be <laughs> it's impossible. don't try. Yeah. It's impossible because every disease is different. And, and you know, there's still controversy about exactly how contagious this disease is. It seems like kind of everyone who has any database or any set of data that could possibly be related to, to COVID is trying to, trying to run a bunch of regressions. I've seen like headlines from everything about, you know, the BCG vaccines to kind of the gender of your head of state as being a potential inf- important factor in the country's performance in controlling COVID, which kind of looks like a multiple hypothesis testing nightmare. Do you think there's any, I guess there's a lot of regressions being run that haven't been published even. So yeah, is there any way of kind of leveraging all that information out there without also just suffering like massive parallelized p-hacking on, on a global scale? <laughs> it sounds like a really catastrophic <laughs> state of the world, massively parallelized p-hacking. <laughs> I mean, I think broadly speaking, and this is not all, always true, but broadly speaking, these regressions are hypothesis generating. And in that sense, the more the better. And then somebody needs to decide what's worthy of following up. But, you know, I don't mind if someone does an observational study that suggests the BCG vaccine is protective. And I know very sensible people who are doing randomized trials now to find out if BCG vaccine is protective. So so that's an example where, you know, it, it seems far-fetched and the cost of being wrong is is a small trial that, that tells you you were wrong. So I, I think there are, there's not a huge risk in having all these multiple comparisons made as long as they're interpreted sensibly as just as as possibilities possibilities yeah you know and i think this kind of gets to my what i said in the boston review last week is that you or this week is that we need different kinds of evidence not all evidence is going to be of high quality and we have to make decisions and and try very hard to make our quality of evidence better so we make better decisions in the future. But I think the the profusion of hypotheses doesn't bother me as long as they're clearly demarcated as hypotheses. Yeah. You've written at least one paper mentioning global catastrophic biological risks, which was called if a GCBR materializes, at what stage will we recognize it? And regular listeners will know that GCBRs are a particular interest for us at 80,000 hours because we kind of easily imagine a pandemic that's as contagious as this SARS-2, but uh, with 10x or even 50x the fatality rate of, of this one. I guess, uh, yeah, given that, do you think it's sensible for emerging disease experts to focus more on the most severe possible pandemics? Or, or, maybe, or do, do you think they already get kind of an, an appropriate level of attention? Yeah, I think that the most severe possible pandemics are either going to be addressable by the types of approaches that we develop for a pandemic like this one, or dealing with them is going to be pointless and we're just going to have a a catastrophe. I don't think that there's a set of approaches that is distinctive to the utterly catastrophic scenario. I mean, this is in some ways close to catastrophic, but it's not going to erase humanity. It may it will do some a lot of damage economically and to health, but it's not going to erase humanity or even a large fraction of humanity. But I think from a from a methodological perspective, you know, it's this one is bad enough that we're essentially throwing everything we have at it. There's no extra thing that we're saying, oh well, we're not going to do that because this isn't bad enough. We're pretty much doing everything we know how to do. And moreover, less severe pandemics are more common because there's been no pandemic to date that has wiped out human race by definition. 
And from a sort of human resource perspective, again, the people who are going to deal with the problem in a catastrophic scenario are the people who are dealing with this problem. They're exactly the same people and their successors. So the idea that I've found sort of hard to understand in, in some effective altruism discussions is this idea that we sort of, you know, that all the all the minor cases are taken care of and we have to focus on the edge cases. But But I don't see any activity that would be helpful for the edge cases that doesn't also involve preparing for the less edge cases like this one. I, can't, I literally can't think of one thing that is like that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you. But what about things like, you know, our management or like regulation of dual use research or how we deal with kind of biological weapons programs? Those things seem a bit more distinctive potentially to kind of worst case scenarios and less towards like natural pandemics. Although I suppose that, yeah, maybe, maybe the split here is between kind of natural pandemics versus anthropogenic ones. Or... Right. Well, I think, I think dual use research is, as you know, a concern that I've been very active in. And I do think it's important, but it's important not only because it could create a, a pandemic 50 times worse than this one, but because it could create, create a pandemic this like this one. Yeah, interesting. And, and that's not taking a position on where, the, where the, this virus came from. That's not my point. My point is is this is really bad and trying to prevent this is a, a worthy outcome. And of course, it's better. It's even a bigger benefit if we can produce, prevent the others. But but I don't see dual-use research as, as an issue of preventing catastrophe only. It's an issue of preventing things along the spectrum to catastrophe. Yeah, that's very interesting. I guess, I guess the weapons programs potentially still stand out as something that's a bit unusual where perhaps it's more focused on, on a disease where, where there's been some intention to try to make it more dangerous. Which, yeah. which doesn't occur otherwise. And that, that's a somewhat unusual case. Although fortunately, there aren't that many biological weapons programs that are active out there. Yeah, but I, again, I think the, there's no activity that's, I mean, yes, biological weapons yeah. Are, yeah. are a problem. But I think, you know, you can think of it as dual-use solutions. That, that if you're anything, anything that's a beneficial against catastrophic risks will be more beneficial both because it's more likely to be effective and because it's more likely to materialize against smaller but still gigantic risks like yeah. this one. I guess uh, one thing that's potentially distinctive about a GCBR is that we would be willing to pay an even higher price than what we have with COVID. So you could imagine, for example, that just you know months and months of like a full lockdown like they did in China, you know, in, in a wider range of countries would become an, a tolerable option potentially. If, if it had a 10% or a 50% fatality rate, it's probably clear that we would try to do that. And so exploring that potentially looks a bit different. Yeah, and I think I think that's reasonable, but I don't think we need a hundred million dollars to do that. I think we need <laughs> yeah. we need you know some relatively modest investment in in those edge cases, but that each investment in these in COVID like prevention and and response will pay equal dividends for those types of things. Yeah, I was going to say if you're going to write more papers on GCBRs, what might they be about? It sounds like it might be similar to the other things that you're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I wrote that in part as a as a sort of version of a talk that I gave at one of the effective altruism conferences where my point was essentially this that short of a deliberate weaponized release the only way we get to a GCBR is to get to is to fail to contain something smaller. Mm, yeah. 
All right, let's talk about human challenge trials for a minute, this kind of controversial idea that you mentioned earlier. So you've been promoting a project called One Day Sooner, which is kind of advocating, or you've written papers related to them. The project's kind of encouraging these human challenge trials, which involve deliberately infecting healthy young volunteers with SARS-CoV-2 in order to test the effectiveness of vaccine candidates and thereby speed up their development. It's a little bit risky for the volunteers, but not that risky for you know the healthy young people who you'd be uh, doing it with, and they'd have access to top medical support. And kind of when I've when I've done the back of the envelope calculation, it just seems like an obviously good idea because you could save thousands or tens of thousands of lives, probably without even a single willing volunteer dying of COVID. I guess I'll give you a softball. Yeah, what's what's the least bad argument against doing human challenge trials? <laughs> Maybe other interviewers would be skeptical, but I I just seem like it just feels to me like a very good idea. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the resistance to it is that there is a very long tradition, unfortunately, of research that was done either with unwilling non-volunteers or people who are under compulsion or in other unethical fashions. And so research has been seen as an area where ethics have to be vastly more restrictive than in other activities that we do. And I think in some ways that's for very good reason and that the, especially the reluctance of many physicians to, to be involved in deliberately giving someone a, an infection is, is an admirable trait. I think that on the other hand, in a situation like this, where there is, as you say, massive social value to a trial in expectation, of course, a trial could fail. And some people have pointed out that, that there's have suggested that there's no social value to finding out that a vaccine doesn't work, but I disagree with that because we need to know which ones do and don't work. But I think the, the in a situation like this with, with a large social value to, to doing such a study and the possibility that there really are thousands of people who have already stated their willingness to take on actually in some cases quite large risks, some of them are not young and healthy, and they understand that that means that, it's, that it is a risk. That we should we should think of this as an activity like other altruistic activities that people engage in, and it's the nature of altruistic activities and of risky activities, especially that you don't always know what the risk is. You know, someone doesn't join the military on the grounds that they've been told that you know over history, seven percent of of military recruits have suffered some kind of bad outcome. I just made that number up. You you join the military. And to the extent that that's an altruistic decision, you decide I'm willing to take this risk because I want to serve serve a purpose that I believe in. And similarly for police and fire. And and I think perhaps most strikingly, the, the people who have jumped into their medical residencies early in the middle of COVID, those are people who are very deliberately saying, I have no prior obligation to do this, but I'm going to take on a risk of being a healthcare worker because I want to help in this problem. And I think it's unfortunate to deny people who want to play a different role as a volunteer the chance to do that. But I think I'm very sympathetic and, and very much agree with the people who think research needs to be treated very carefully. I just think that has to be modulated by the risk and benefit. Yeah. yeah it seems pretty perverse to kind of allow people to take on probably a greater risk just to work at a checkout at a supermarket than you would allow someone to take on in order to potentially speed up the development of a vaccine, which seems like it's even like it's like it's more important. This is we do just have these different standards for research than for practically any other behavior. Yeah, I think it's partly that. And I think it's also that, you know, if the trial is designed well, 
some of the people in the trial are almost certain to get infected. Whereas, so we also have this whole strange approach philosophically to statistical versus deterministic lives. So I think that's also part of it. And I think the, actually, I think a big part of it is also the fact that healthcare professionals, doctors and, and nurses are going to be involved in these trials just by the way they're set up. And the, the notion that you take off your physician role and put on the researcher role and that those are really different and that your duties are different in those roles is, I think it's hard for anyone to get their head around. I don't, I don't think it's a weakness. I think it's just part of humanity that we have a hard time compartmentalizing. Uh, it's probably a good thing, mostly that we do. But, but in this case, I think it, it can keep people from doing something that would be valuable. Do you think human challenge trials will ultimately happen? I think it's looking increasingly likely that they will in the sense that the ethical statements that have been made now by, by quite diverse and authoritative groups in the World Health Organization and, and elsewhere are more permissive than I might have imagined at first and are very much encouraging the development of the framework to do this. And I'm also encouraged that that a lot of policymakers have begun to say that this is a an important option. I mean, in some ways, one thing I, w- I would, would say is that I don't really have a desire for human challenge trials to work in the, to, to happen in the abstract. I want them to be a possibility, but it's not that I have a special desire for, for that to be the way that a vaccine is licensed or is pushed forward. I would like it to be pushed forward in the fastest ethical and scientifically valid way. And I think this might be that. But on, in some sense, I do hope that they happen in that if they happen, it will be because, because a phase three trial is not practical to do in a very quick way because there aren't places with large, very high incidence of the disease where the trial could be done. So it would indicate that we've controlled things well, at least in the places where we are contemplating trials. Yeah. Well, thanks for being willing to speak up in favor of this idea early. And I guess also thanks to the 20,000 people who've already put their names down for potentially participating in <laughs> in, a, in a human challenge trial. It's, uh, I think, a very good sign about someone they're willing to do that. Yeah. And I should say just about the, the One Day Sooner, I, I'm not, we weren't promoting One Day Sooner. And as far as I know, they didn't exist at the time we wrote the article. I think what happened is that when we wrote the article, Josh Morrison and Sophie Rose and, and a few others created One Day Sooner. And I don't actually know the whole causal chain, but I think it went the other direction, if I'm not mistaken. Nice. Yeah, we'll stick up a link to, to One Day Sooner as, as well as your paper. Let's discuss disease surveillance for a second. It would have been really useful to have population-wide randomly sampled testing back in February, I guess possibly even January, to try to figure out how widespread SARS-2 was in different places and, and, and try to pin down what the actual infection fatality rate was. It's kind of crazy to me that we that we got to the point of shutting down our economies at a kind of a cost of tens of billions of dollars a day. And this kind of still at that point hadn't been done anywhere. And, and it could have been that that could have revealed that the infection fatality rate was much lower than we thought. And so we were making a massively costly mistake. As it turns out, it doesn't seem like that was the case. The, the IFR is decently high. It was about where we thought it was, but we could have made a mistake. But no one was willing to use these testing kits to test randomly selected people, as far as I could see, even though the information they would produce could potentially save far more lives in the bigger picture than, than testing someone who has you know, COVID-like symptoms. Yeah, do, do you agree it would make sense at a global or national level to reserve some tests for randomly selected people for surveillance purposes? Yeah, and I've written that in the New England Journal in February or March. I don't remember when it came out. I think it was might have even been January. I think it was February. 
that we would waste a lot, we should be wasting a lot of tests in quotes, doing surveillance to try to understand the extent of infection. I think it would have been in retrospect, it would have not worked that well to do it with, with viral tests because well, unless we had done it truly with a random cross section of the population because the proportion asymptomatic and, and mildly symptomatic was so high. So we would have had to be sort of prescient about the types of people to test, which we weren't, at least I wasn't at that time. The, in general, the, the idea of having some random testing is, is clearly very important. Had we done it with serology, we would have solved that problem, but had a different problem, which is that the specificity of the serologic tests is not perfect. And so we, with low prevalence, we would have had a lot of false positives. So I don't, I don't have a really good after the fact we should have done such and such idea because in fact this we might have been misled even if we had done all of that. Yeah, I, maybe I'm not quite understanding. It seems like if we, if in this case we'd done thousands of PCR tests and randomly selected people across the United States, we would have, I guess, in February found out that there was some people who had it, but it wasn't super common. It wasn't as if it was spreading everywhere, but it was, we were at the beginnings of a, of a pandemic at that point, which seems like it would have been really helpful because then we would potentially would have brought forward a bunch of the response because people we were kind of sleepwalking into disaster at that point. And, and it would have, and would have prevented this long discussion about like, oh, is the infection fatality rate in fact really low because tons of people have had it. It would have shown that that's not the case or am I not right about that? Yeah. I think I think that was that discussion was more in March, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I might be mistaken. Yeah, but it would have like prevented, it would have made that unnecessary. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. I don't really know how many people had it in the U.S. Whether thousands would have really picked up very much. I see. In a statistically meaningful way. Uh, so you think we might have been misled by getting a result that kind of nobody had it, but in reality, there were some clusters starting in various places, and we were in a dangerous situation. Yeah, yeah I think we could have easily missed it, although. I mean, it would have been better than no data, but I, I'm not sure it would have settled the issue. Yeah. Do you think that we should try to do things to make this surveillance happen sooner next time? Yeah, I mean, we certainly should. We certainly should find a more reliable way to make sure that we have testing kits, you know, one of which is to just follow the WHO's recommendation yeah. and not try to be too clever in creating the, the kits as we did in the U.S., Another thing is clearly we have a reagent supply chain problem that needs to be fixed, both by decentral or sort of yeah decentralizing it so that it can, the reagents can be made in multiple places and we're not relying on one, and by expanding the capacity. So, yeah, I think I think that the harder thing that I think a little bit of ingenuity probably could solve. I just don't know how to solve it now. Is trying to have a system in place so that you can get to. 10,000 randomly selected people or 100,000 randomly selected people in a way that's not heavily biased by whether they think they've had the infection already. I think that's a big problem in a lot of the surveys that have been done so far. But that, I think, is a soluble problem. It's just not a solved problem yet. Yeah. As far as I know, kind of no country used what testing capacity they had. Admittedly, not very limited testing capacity in February for this population level surveillance. Some started doing it a bit in March. But am I right in understanding that the barrier to that is that I guess so at a national, in terms of forming national policy or, or in terms of protecting the population as a whole, what you need is the surveillance. But then kind of the healthcare system is very focused on this clinical mindset of like, how do we help the patients in front of us or the patients who are coming in the door that are sick? And they don't perhaps think about it at the same systematic level where you're thinking about like, how do we stop the pandemic or how do we get the right policy in place at the right time? And so that ends up dominating the, the, the rationing of the, of the tests. 
I think that's right, and that's why we put a line in our in our paper in new in February about the need to allocate some tests for this purpose. So I fully agree with you, but but I think it also was that there was not an infrastructure for doing it easily. I see. Okay. I see. So you think perhaps the next limiting factor would be that we wouldn't have a good process for randomly selecting, for truly randomly selecting people across a country to be tested? Yeah. I mean, we've been trying to think of this for serologic testing and, you know, the especially for something that involves sticking a swab in your... <laughs> nasopharynx like virus testing or pricking your finger for blood it's just not something that everybody is desperate to do surprisingly enough and so so you do get biases and who is willing to do that so talked about door-to-door type of approaches but what about paying people pay them each 100 bucks paying them paying them would work i think that's a, a good idea and uh, you know in spain they just did a big zero survey and they they put the census agency or the statistics agency in charge of it, and and people were sort of stalked until <laughs> until they made contact, and they made an appointment and said, "We'll we'll be there at your house to do this." So uh, there are ways to do it. It's just it's hard to if you've never done it before and you're not being supported from above. There's a thing called the American Community Survey that's part of the census that would be excellent for this, but has very slow moving wheels. Yeah. Yeah, I know some people who've been trying to do this and the number of practical hurdles is substantial. It's the kind of thing where you really want to set up the infrastructure ahead of time. (laughs) Otherwise you just get delayed for weeks. Yeah, is is there any way maybe of setting things up ahead of time such that whatever organization has the nation's or the the whole population's interest at heart rather than the patient in front of them, at the front of their mind, that they get access naturally to testing capacity so they can then use it for this purpose rather than they have to go begging for it and then it's refused. Right. Well, that might be the CDC in a normal time. <laughs> and, and you know, it was the statistics agency of of Spain and the I think the census or some equivalent in the UK has been doing a, a serologic study. So, you know, there is such an agency. It's just that they've been sidelined in this. Yeah. I guess another, another option would just be to massively increase kind of the standby testing capacity that we have. So we're not under such the rationing isn't as severe early on in a pandemic and people feel more flexibility to take a thousand to do these these surveys. Right. I think that's true. And much of that can be done in in advance, but the the exact kits need to be generated in response. And as we saw, that doesn't always go right. Yeah. I guess, well, well, there's some more flexible things like kind of the, the nanopore sequencing, which seems like it might be possible to turn, to quickly readapt it to a new disease, which seems kind of cool. Well, it's possible to readapt PCR to a new disease. You just have to do it right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's nothing technically that hard about it. It was just a mistake. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about how people can figure out what to believe about COVID-19 and I guess other new diseases as they emerge. I guess true experts by definition are the people that you should listen to, but it seems like it's a little bit still up for grabs. Who's going to turn out to have been the the best experts to listen to on on COVID-19? Have you learned to update your views more in response to some kinds of sources and, and, and less in response to others over the last couple of months? Yes. And with the exception of of sort of people who are quite junior in the field who I just didn't know as well, I'm afraid it's reinforced my views that people who have been in this business for a long time are really more reliable and that a Nobel Prize doesn't make you an expert in this and that a being at a prestigious university in Silicon Valley doesn't make you an expert in this. 
and that the intersection of those two doesn't make you an expert in this. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, once again, in my opinion, the most important work, a lot of it has been done, you know, putting aside any self-dealing and or self-evaluation, I would say in Hong Kong, from the group that's been working on these things for 20 years since SARS, at the London School, at Imperial College, at the RIVM in the Netherlands, a little bit less just because it's a smaller group, but they continue to do excellent work, and in a few other places. And then there are some new voices that are, that are doing important work who just are newer to the field. And it's really not mostly people coming in from outside, in my opinion. And I'm sure I have a little bit of bias, but I think much of that bias is justified. Yeah, interesting. So how would we identify these people? I guess you're, you're suggesting maybe next time we should just look for people who've been doing contagious disease epidemiology for decades, and they're going to have a lot of build-up knowledge that will allow them to reach the right answers faster? Yeah, and I mean, I'm I'm a real fan of people who are very explicit about their sources of uncertainty and what their findings do and don't imply for decision-making. And I think that is characteristic of the people that I've just described and, you know, is sometimes in competition with trying to get a splashy publication. But I think the best groups in our field have figured out a way to balance that and to say what they found, but not to overclaim it. And, you know, just applying that filter of, of is there a good presentation of the uncertainties and the limitations gets rid of a lot of the garbage in the field. It's not a perfect filter, but it's a it's a pretty good heuristic. And I also think my doctoral advisor, Bob May, who died very recently, a couple of weeks ago, used to say, he said he's Australian, he was Australian, so he said it with a, a little bit more color than this. He said, if the freaking guy can't explain it, he doesn't understand what he's talking about. <laughs> it's not yeah. your fault. And I also do see a very strong correlation between people who explain things clearly and people who are reliable because it's harder to hide hide what's really going on either from your I mean I think a lot of people who do low quality work don't understand why they got the results they got they just got them and thought oh that's exciting and the people who do high quality work and can explain what they did I find much more credible because ultimately all of this boils down to multiplication division yeah. and a little bit of calculus. <laughs> yeah. It's not it's not quantum physics. It's not I mean there are no truly counterintuitive things happening in our field. There are some things that are surprising when you first hear about them and I just worked through an exercise like that in my class right before I spoke to you. So there are things that are surprising, but there are, are no things that are so surprising you just say, "Well, the model says this and I don't understand why." So if you can't explain it, you really don't understand it. And those two heuristics together, I think, actually are a pretty good filter on on work that's likely to be meaningful. Yeah. I guess researchers from adjacent fields like physics, among others, kind of have tried getting on board and trying to write papers related to COVID-19 to try to help out, given that it was an emergency. I guess, have you been heartened by that all-hands-on-deck mentality, or has it been maybe more frustrating seeing them make potentially harmful mistakes in the analysis? I think when it's out of field, it's been not hugely helpful on on the whole. I mean, I think economists writing about the intersection between economics and epidemiology obviously is is a good thing. Not that everything they write is good, but that we need ranges of expertise. Yeah. It's a very interdisciplinary problem. Yeah. But but I think Julia Gog wrote a who's a infectious disease modeler wrote an article in Nature Physics about that phenomenon and 
her conclusion, and she's much more close to the mathematical edge of the field than I am, so more sort of closer to the physicists in a way. Her conclusion was, please don't keep sending me your new Excel models of, <laughs> of, of SEIR, because we can all do that. And I think, you know, it's, you can make snide comments and whatever, and uh, that's not my intention. But what I, but I, it comes back to this issue that quantitative rigor is actually not the limiting resource right now. It's, it's understanding of the data and what they mean and don't mean. And so the, the most common problem in people from out of the field who haven't spent some time trying to understand the issues is taking data literally when they, they just can't be interpreted literally and then drawing mistaken conclusions. Yes. I guess yeah, moving away from academia, there's been this phenomenon of kind of you know, the smart generalist commentator, I guess Thomas Pruyu, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, is kind of an example of that, who's someone who doesn't really have any particular expertise in this, but nonetheless you know, offering policy advice or writing up blog posts that, that, are, that are widely read. Yeah, do you, do you have a view on that? And I suppose if I, I know that many listeners are kind of sympathetic to that group and think that they've actually performed fairly well in terms of you know, spotting what was going on surprisingly early. Yeah, what would you say to someone who was kind of who thought that those commentators were, were actually quite useful to follow? I mean, I think I think it's good to hear a range of views. I I certainly don't think that the sort of old network, leaving the boys out of it, but the old <laughs> network is the only people that one should listen to. I think the the question is, and I don't know the the things that you're specifically referring to, but you know, I try to read as widely as I can, but I think if a person is not attentive to, in this case, changes in testing and delays in when deaths happen compared to cases and some of the just basic aspects of the data generating process, then I'm not that interested in their analysis. If they are and or if it's not something that where that's relevant, then I think, you know, many voices is good in part because we really do need some creative solutions. And I think epidemiological modelers are not the most creative people about thinking of, say, ways of, of uh, running shops, dealing with the non, yeah, with, with the non, with, with the areas outside our field. So I very much celebrate that people are thinking hard about this. I just think that the disciplinary knowledge actually does matter in some cases, and you can either have that before or gain it by, by listening to the people who, who do this for a living. But but that the impulse to be different is sometimes more than the impulse to be accurate. Yeah, it's interesting. Some of the kind of generalist commentators who I've thought have done quite well, it's been kind of 80, 90%. They read the experts in the field and kind of learn what they can from like reading a whole range of those and then add like a little bit of analysis on top of that based perhaps on what they know. I guess, yeah, the people who try to do it all on their own uh, <laughs> tend to end up more leading themselves astray. Do you think people give too much or too little weight to epidemiological modeling papers? Yes, <laughs> I think they give both. <laughs> um, you know, I think uh, there are some people who immediately get it, who understand that this is one type of input to decision making, that it's limited by the state of current knowledge and by the state of what we can predict about human behavior as it affects the epidemics, and that models nonetheless have a certain value. The other two mistakes both happen. There are people who think think models are sort of just making up data or are, are not meaningful. And there are people who expect them to create knowledge where none exists of certain kinds. So the kind of knowledge that they can create is that they're, they're tools for translating 
facts and assumptions into scenarios and projections. That's what models are good for. Rarely are they purely based on absolutely known facts. And they're, especially for infectious diseases, they almost always require some scenario assumption about the behavioral aspect. So assume that social distancing works X amount over this period of time and then stops or whatever that is. So they're if-then statements. They're very, in that respect, they're completely different from weather forecasts. So there's no, there's no best model of, there is probably a best model of the weather. Maybe that reflects my ignorance of the field, but I think <laughs> there are probably objectively better and worse models of, of the weather. There is no objectively better, best model of epidemiology because we're answering different questions with different models and because we are, and because they're if-then statements, they're not. They're not physics. They're, they're, they're something different. And so I think that's the, that's the nub of the matter and that a lot of the back and forth about whether the imperial model was wrong or changed or, or whatever boils down to the fact that the imperial, the same model from Imperial College modeled different assumptions as it should about how behavior and, and politics and policies work and got different conclusions. And that's shows that the model is doing something meaningful. If it didn't get different conclusions with different assumptions, then it would be broken. So I think 80% of the criticism of that particular model was just a misguided sense that it should give a single answer. But no model can give a single answer under different assumptions. Yeah, I think in many cases that was active misinformation rather than misunderstanding. <laughs> it was kind of hard to believe Perhaps. that people were. Yeah. You've been... So a couple of times as part of a project run by uh, Thomas McAndrew and Nicholas Reich at the University of Massachusetts, where they uh, were serving contagious disease experts uh, and asking for confidence intervals on you know, the number of confirmed COVID cases or, or deaths by particular particular future dates. And they also teamed up with the Good Judgment Project and, and Metaculous, these kind of crowd forecasting efforts or projects to, to, to evaluate kind of the added insight that you might get from crowdsourced forecasts over, over export forecasts. What do you think of that project? I think it's a worthwhile exercise. I think that for this disease in particular, I mean, Nick Nick has has built a reputation in part from forecasting dengue and influenza, which are two diseases that, to some approximation, don't really respond that much to the the usual variations in our behavior. So what we do and how we try to control them is, except for influenza vaccines and in the future maybe dengue vaccines, but even there is. In some sense, it's doing physics rather than rather than behavior in physics. So my concern is that people often don't make that distinction, and that models that get predictions of behavior sensitive and policy sensitive infections right might get them right for the wrong reasons. Because to get it right, you have to either be lucky, which I think is what might happen, or <laughs> yeah. or predict both the policy and the effect of that policy on the disease. And infectious disease modelers are no smarter than anybody else about predicting policy. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so on that, I guess someone yesterday forwarded me this analysis suggesting that the the, the crowdsourced forecasts have been quite a bit more accurate so far than the, than the surveys of academics, academic ep- epidemiologists. Though it's kind of early days, there's only been so many so many forecasts resolved. And I guess everyone loves an underdog story, so people uh, people kind of liked liked this tweet because it's like fun to think of. Oh, you know, random people off the street. Yeah. If you like get enough of them, they can they can beat the experts. The more I thought about it, the more I thought this was not a super fair comparison. So, so in one case, it's like these forecasts are often done by, by a small number of experts who are being sent this 
the survey who presumably are under massive work pressure at the moment. So they may not be spending very long producing these numbers at all. It might be like, what does an expert think in kind of a few minutes of filling out this form <laughs> versus right, right. these people on the internet who are obsessed with this, who spend hours or days just honing their models. Right. They're also, right. there's, there's far more people on these online platforms. And these platforms have also developed these very good aggregation algorithms where they kind of figure out who has the best predictions in the past and then give them extra weight when that wasn't going on with, with this survey. So in some senses, it's like an apples and oranges comparison, though I suppose you could say, well, if, we're, if going forward, maybe we should use these crowdsourcing platforms over expert surveys, if only because like a whole lot more effort potentially goes into those forecasts. Yeah, I think that's possible. Do you think contagious disease experts should practice making predictions and seeing how they perform to try to kind of hone their calibration and skill for, for next time? I was thinking like epidemiologist super forecasters who kind of combine all of the domain knowledge with all of the expertise in, in forecasting specifically could be a really useful earning warning, early, early warning system for next time. Yeah, I mean, I do think, and I, I would probably include some other specialists as well. It seems to me that the virologists were perhaps even more ahead of us, ahead of the game in this case, than the infectious disease epidemiologists because they saw the sequence similarities to SARS. Or at least that's one story that's going around. We'll, we'll resolve it <laughs> yeah. by either a fist fight or a, or a historical <laughs> record. But yeah, I think that would be valuable in terms of predicting the likelihood that a, that a particular infection gets out of control. I mean, that, in a way, that's what ProMed is trying to do without explicit predictions is to try to aggregate information from people around the world about infectious disease threats, but then there's not a separate panel of people who try to digest it all. Yeah. It's interesting that the virologists were doing better. I mean, maybe they were getting called in earlier to, to really pay attention to this, to this pandemic. And I guess, it's, I guess it suggests you need like some, you can't just focus on one discipline. You need like some diversity of disciplines because they're each going to be bringing some different level of expertise to the, to the problem. Yeah. All right. Let's move on and talk about epidemiology as a field. You've written this, this short article called Pandemic Preparedness for the Long Term, which talks about the investments you'd like to see in capacity building for epidemiology and, I guess, nearby fields. Do you want to do a quick summary of the, of the views that you present in there? Sure, I'd love to. This was written with colleagues Brian Grenfell and Beth Halloran at Princeton and University of Washington, respectively. And what we were trying to point out is that we are, as a community, of infectious disease epidemiologists able to respond to this pandemic to the extent we are because there have been major investments in building what we sort of refer to as an ecosystem of, of people with a range of expertise who know each other, work together well, and, and have been working on a whole bunch of other problems. Obviously, no one was working on COVID-19 before this year. And so everything we've been building up in terms of methods and statistical approaches and software and tools and understanding has been based on studying other diseases, often other diseases that nobody pays attention to outside the field. So the basic idea is that we can mobilize in these times of crisis because there's a really healthy community of excellent people doing work in peacetime, as we call it, on a whole range of other problems none of which are as attractive to funders, to put it bluntly, as dealing with a crisis. Interesting. Okay, so the idea is maybe people aren't appreciating the extent to which just funding general research within epidemiology or contagious diseases means that you have all of these people at the ready to handle a disaster when it arrives. 
Yes, exactly. And I mean, the, the most blunt version of that, not not exactly, was was President Trump saying, oh, it's fine that we reduce the size of the of the CDC because those we can just hire those people back when we need them. That was one of his <laughs> early press conferences. So that's a sort of caricature of the idea. But I think more seriously, the issue is that, and this is the part that I particularly feel strongly about, if you want the most innovative people to be putting their talents towards studying a problem, you have to make it a life that's interesting and attractive to those people. And often that's going to mean some kind of academic freedom to to work on interesting problems, which may not be the crisis of the moment, or there may not be a crisis at the moment. But that's what keeps people engaged, who then obviously want to turn their attention to to issues that are that are urgent when when that happens. But you you can't sort of only focus on narrow, highly visible problems and keep the people engaged who are going to be your best assets at those crisis times. I mean, if you look at the leading epidemiologists around the country and around the world, they work on dengue and they work on cholera and they work on malaria and they work on flu, seasonal flu, and they work on all sorts of topics with all sorts of approaches, evolutionary approaches and epidemiological approaches and modeling and statistical innovation. And that's who we're drawing on. We're not drawing on the COVID experts because there are no COVID, there were no COVID experts. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you have to make the field attractive to those people. And and the other part of what we argued in this piece was that there are sort of three big parts of the ecosystem that, that have all lost funding in the last two or three years. One is the Midas program that I've been a part of, which is has had centers of excellence around the country. Betts Halloran was another leader of one of them, along with us and, and some others. And those centers of excellence have been all defunded. A second is a program called RAPID that was a part of NIH and the Department of Homeland Security that Brian Grenfell was a leader of and that built links around the country and around the world between groups through postdocs. It was a very postdoc-focused fo program. And the third was is the the summer institute that Betts Halloran has been running and which is canceled this year because of COVID, but but for over a decade has been training people in the really cutting edge parts of our field where you can't really do a class in it for four people at your institution, but every summer the best people, the best teachers and the and the most interested students come together and you get a class going. And that ecosystem worked really well and and produced all the people that are most of almost all the people who are doing the work now, but all three of them have lost funding. Yeah, so I, I found this almost hard hard to believe. <laughs> I was reading this article that it sounds like you're saying at a broad level the programs that will produce kind of the, the Mark Lipsitches of the of the future are shrinking now, rather rather than than growing. Are, are there other programs replacing them? It seems it seems unfathomable. So I think that the summer school may may have found a way forward. I. I would have to ask Betts what the current status is, but it sounded somewhat more optimistic. The research funding, there is nothing like them. There's there's a bit of Midas left, but it's on a much smaller scale and much more individually targeted to, to defined projects. So there really isn't. There are proposals. There's proposals for an infectious disease forecasting center that have been floated in, in some of the congressional funding bills 
that may come to fruition. But I, I'm, and perhaps this is just me, but I, but I really feel strongly that the sort of academic and university location for some of this work is essential because people have different personality types and people, one personality type is an innovative person who doesn't have the tolerance to be a government employee because <laughs> they, they just, they like working on what they like working. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and you know, the, the world can't be only those people, but, but the world does benefit from having those people. And so I think some of the interesting hybrid models, and I'm not saying we need to reinvent or restart exactly what we've had in the past at all, but some of the innovative models that have been used in, in the UK and in the Netherlands and in Hong Kong really bring people to the interface. So they, they have a lot of people duly appointed at universities and within public health agencies who can then have part of their research group that's really focused on applied questions and part that's focused on more fundamental issues. I think that's a really excellent model that we could try to emulate. So yeah, I don't, I, I don't think we need to restart the past, but I do think we need to think of innovative ways to accomplish those goals. I guess yeah, taking a broader view, it seems like a natural takeaway from this experience is that we need more and or kind of better people working in contagious disease epidemiology. And then a natural follow-up is like, what's the most important bottleneck for, for making that happen? And I guess you've mentioned too here just that the, the programs that produce these people are uh, maybe getting shut down or they're, or they're very limited by, by funding. And also maybe that having academic freedom or freedom to pursue research that you find interesting can be a big draw card to, to pull people into the field. Are there other bottlenecks like just a lack of training programs or, you know, should salaries be higher in this field just because it's so important to society or maybe it needs greater prestige in order to draw people into it? Do you have any views on, on, on those? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I do think that at the height of these three programs that I mentioned, Rapid Midas and Sysmid, the summer school, I think we were really building something very effective. And so to me, and, and of course, more funding is is beneficial, especially for a field that, that pays okay and isn't by any means low paid, but is not is not the most money you could make with a quantitative background. And also, you know, in the early stages doesn't even really equip you to pay student debt. So I think more funding is certainly needed, but I think the the most fundamental, I mean, for, for individuals and salaries, but I think the most fundamental thing is, again, a sort of strategic approach to building this infrastructure to have training for people in the really cutting edge stuff, which can't be done easily at most individual institutions and needs a, a sort of center. And then this is a bigger, this is an issue in biomedical funding in general. I mean, the, the government grant system is very, very slow. And so a typical cycle is if I apply for a research grant, it usually isn't funded the first cycle. So six months later, I find out it wasn't funded. I reapply and then another six months go by. So it's been maybe 15 months and I get funded if I get funded the second time. And so then, you know, by the time I'm in the second year of the grant, it's two years since I thought of the best thing I could do with the money. And it's no longer the best thing I could do with the money. But because these very targeted research grants, and this is true of many foundation grants as well, are, are quite subject specific. You know, you don't, if you were going to design a system to cripple science, you would say we're going to fund you to do the, sometimes the best thing you could think of to do two years ago. And it's just not a good system. And I think that's true as much in other fields as in epidemiology. But 
but with with a field where the problems are changing really every month you know no one knew that yellow fever was a problem until there was an outbreak in angola and then suddenly it was a problem and because we had funding from the from this midas center that was not very narrowly tied to a specific question we were able to just start working on it and again with covid so i think it's particularly acute for infectious diseases so i guess i mean the grant makers are doing this presumably because they're trying to have more impact or one reason they're trying to have more impact by like funding the specific the very specific programs that they think are going to do are going to be the most useful but i guess you're saying in fact inadvertently that uh, ends up handicapping the whole field and not being as good as just finding great people and giving them money and then letting them decide how to how to allocate it and maybe checking in periodically on those people and seeing that they've made sensible decisions. Yeah, and uh, and, and I think both are appropriate. I don't. I, I wouldn't argue for just just funding individual people in part because it reinforces old boy networks and and other non meritory merit based ways of decision making. So I, I don't want to go to to a pure version of that. But I do think that when when a group has shown over time that it can produce exceptionally good research in a field, the purpose of peer review should not be nitpicking the details of the description of one project, but rather should be to figure out whether the direction that is proposed to go is a sensible direction. And the funding cycle has to be shortened somehow. There, there just has to be a way to make decisions that don't take two years. And that's really how long it takes often. Yeah, it's interesting that this is such a, this is a common refrain from Silicon Valley that you should just give amazing people funding to, to pursue their projects and not try to micromanage them and tell them exactly what to do because they have a better idea, or at least if you've chosen the people well. I suppose, yeah, well, this is kind of YC's or like Y Combinator's mentality. I guess it's possible that, yeah, <laughs> the scientific funding research process should uh, should take a, take a leaf from that. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it, it, there are places that do that. That's what Howard Hughes does, and that's what what the Ellison Foundation used to do before it changed directions. But they used to say NIH funds projects, Gates Foundation funds problems, and some of the other funders fund people. But I think I think there's just not enough, and I I even I don't even know that it's individual people. I mean, I think Silicon Valley has an overly maybe somewhat narrow view of the the great individual genius as opposed to the to the synergy of multiple good people but you know groups of people that have consistently worked together well and done good work is an important model with really strong safeguards against i mean my colleague caroline bucky published a, a sort of creed occur today in the times higher education supplement about the extreme sexism that she's experienced in in the covid response and I think I've been convinced that the problem with all of these sort of fund the genius things is that people don't identify genius as well if it has two X chromosomes. Yeah. What would it look like for epidemiology if it were kind of a bigger and more developed discipline that was ready to take on the next pandemic? Kind of what tools would we have or what would we know that we didn't know this time around? Do you want to paint, a, paint an inspiring vision? Yeah. Well, I think each each pandemic we learn the things that we didn't realize were going to be problems. So it's a little bit it's a little bit hard to be truly prescient. But I think from this we've learned that really robust ways of dealing with limited data and with changing data are crucial to dealing with a, a really big pandemic. I've sort of 
joke to somebody that if disease forecasting is like weather forecasting, which it sort of is and sort of isn't, it's a little bit like trying to do weather forecasting with each county inventing its own type of thermometer <laughs> in the middle of the in the middle of the forecast. Yeah, I mean every well, in the middle of a hurricane. <laughs> right, right in the middle of the hurricane and and trying to do the forecast. So I think there's a whole class of of problems that people are aware of. Now casting is one where you try to figure out how many events have happened today based on how many you know about today. Short-term for forecasting based on that is another back calculation where you're trying to figure out from one indicator that's delayed, like deaths, how many cases there were sometime in the past. There's a whole set of tools like that that we've been fortuitously we're working on in some cases, like now casting in our group, but we need to make much more robust and make the ability to use it much more widespread because we're all doing it in a sort of artisanal way right now and it should be it should be scaled up. So I think dealing with messy data is kind of the the art form of pandemics. And last time it was dealing with unknown severity. This time severity has been an easier problem and and sort of trajectory has been a much harder problem. So I think that is actually the bucket that I think can includes most of of the problems is how to deal with messy data. And then I think also sort of a more widely shared sense of what does it take to make a good model for a problem. There's no one model that's good for everything, but there are good models for certain problems. And, you know, we shouldn't have a situation where someone is fitting normal distributions to pandemics and, and going on NBC for that. That's not, that's not good. And so some, some more universal standards in the field. I think those would be really very positive. And then I think the last piece is really learning to integrate various forms of big data into epidemiology, whether that be movement data, like number of people are doing, or genomic sequence data, or, or other types of data. And again, we've all during peacetime been working on that, Caroline's work on mobility and, and our work on genome data and many other people's work on genome data, but I think a big push on sort of developing methods that are robust and can be wheeled out when we need them. Yeah. So we have quite a lot of listeners who are in government in one capacity or another, maybe civil servants and others who are looking to make really effective donations and others in grad school. Is there anything you'd like to, to, to say to those groups to, about how they might be able to contribute to, to getting us to this to this better world? Possible that there's just too many, too many options. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think... For all sorts of understandable reasons, government funders want to control what they fund. And so I would say that, that one piece of it is not that you should try to give up control, but that there should be a recognition of the sort of human resource issues of, of trying to retain interesting and innovative people in a, in a field in addition to trying to get to particular goals. So that's another way of saying what I've been saying all along. I think on the, you said, what what would I say to students? Is that another thing? You, yeah, if someone so, was doing kind of a quantitative, integral quantitative grad program. Yeah. So I think, I mean, one of the interesting things is that many, many different quantitative fields have been brought to bear on this pandemic. And what I would say is that for infectious diseases, the part that, that is really hard to appreciate without studying it directly is just the messiness of the data. So if you're a physicist, you have instruments where you know the precision of, the inst of every instrument 
quite directly. If you're an economist, you know that you're mismeasuring all sorts of things, but but it's at least mismeasured the same way every quarter. Um, <laughs> yeah. If you're an infectious disease epidemiologist, it's literally not possible to compare in a naive way the results this week to the results last week unless you know that the testing capacity was similar and that the people the case definition was similar. There are all these pieces that are you know that sound annoying and and they are annoying, but but which are really integral. And so I, I think what's really fun and hard and challenging in our field is is integrating quantitative approaches with an appreciation of sort of the the messiness of data and where they come from and trying to make the most appropriate use of those messy data because they have a lot of information in them. But it's a difficult signal extraction problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, let's do a bit of career advice to, to finish. What sort of work do you think can most raise the chances that we'll be able to kind of contain disease outbreaks early or you know make make the next pandemic less less dangerous? Is there anything that you'd like to highlight in particular? Well, I would go back to what I said earlier and say that building capacity for all the different disciplines that around infectious disease epidemiology, the evolutionary side and sequence side, the the statistical methodology side and the modeling side, among others, is building the capacity to, to deal with this kind of problem. And I think it's important in thinking of it as a career question that people should do things that interest them and not just things they think are going to save the world because that's a hard prediction and you're more likely to save the world with something you like because you'll do it better. And I've, I'm not sure if I've always believed that. I think I, <laughs> I used to feel more guilty about doing things that I found interesting. But but ultimately, I do think that, you know, who knows what's going to be the most most in-demand thing. And, and as we've seen, lots of different types of skills can be turned to to dealing with a pandemic like this. So I, I don't know if that's evading the question or not, but, <laughs> but I think that's, I'm a fan of trying to find overlap between useful and fun. For people who want to be the, the next Mark Lipsitch, do you have any advice on where they, where they ought to study or what they ought to study or perhaps early career jobs they, they could maybe go for? Well, I think there are a number of good programs. Ours is one of them. And, and there are a number around the country and around the world that have characteristics in terms of what you're studying of being very good quantitatively and very good in terms of understanding data. I think, as I've said before, I think for infectious disease modeling, understanding the limitations of the data is absolutely critical and, and not universal. There are many people who do really complicated and, and elegant models that just don't focus on where the data come from. And I think those models then are less able to be applied in settings like this. I think that the other thing, and I wrote about this in the Boston Review article recently as well, is that learning to digest evidence from different fields that are related is really valuable. And you can't do that all at once. You're not going to learn every field in one graduate program or even a postdoc in a graduate program. But at least keeping the openness to be willing to entertain inputs from from the very basic science side, from the social and behavioral side, and from the quantitative side, and to try to develop a sense of how to weigh different kinds of evidence, which I think is just comes with experience, are all important. And you know, I think many of the people, the schools that I've mentioned, including ours and uh, London School and Imperial College and University of Hong Kong, are full of people like that. And 
Princeton is another one in the Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. University of Chicago is another one. There are just a bunch of places that, you know, are better and worse at, at individual pieces of that, but collectively are trying to train broad thinkers and not and not only narrow specialists. And I have some advice to graduate students and postdocs on my website, which maybe you could link oh, yeah. to, actually. Yeah, yeah, I'll uh, put up a link to that in the show notes. Finally, there's a lot of people who want to kind of contribute their skills to the efforts to, to mitigate COVID-19 now. And I guess for those outside the obvious skill sets like epidemiologists, virologists, public health experts, what are ways that you think that they can usefully contribute? I suppose avoid saying stupid things on the, online, but right. <laughs> yeah. other than that. No, I mean, I think, I think a lot of people are contributing through really good communication, such as, as journalists and, and even a lot of, of people who are just in it for the, for the interest and who have other jobs. So I think trying to digest and, and share thoughtful summaries of the, of the evidence is a very valuable thing. And, you know, some colleagues who aren't directly in the infectious disease area, but, but have some knowledge of clinical medicine and other fields have been doing a really nice job of that. I think in the broader society, you know, I, I think a lot of it comes down to voting and working for leaders who respect science and follow a technocratic approach to solving problems. I mean, I, I don't think science should be the dictating outcomes, but I think there is a strain of leader right now in our country and elsewhere that seriously deprecate science as a as an approach to understanding the world and that that is really really damaging and we've perhaps had no better illustration of that than than now well my guest today has been mark lipsich thanks for coming on the Eighty Thousand hours podcast and thanks for your twitter feed and thanks for all of the work you're doing to try to save our lives all right thank you just a reminder about the eagx virtual conference uh, coming up next month which i mentioned at the top of the show You'll want to apply ASAP if you'd like to go, and you can do that at eaglobal.org. As always, we've got lots of links related to the many topics discussed in this episode in the blog post associated with the episode, which we link to in the show notes. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell, transcripts by Zachy Orhack. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.